we had this treatment, this drug, um, and we gave one injection and waited a couple weeks and now the man's arm looks like this. You could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium. I'm Josh. And I'm Preet. And this is Sicker Than Your Average Health Show. On today's show, we're bringing you some reasons to be optimistic about a topic that usually doesn't give many reasons for optimism. This episode is going to break down a conversation that we had with a cancer researcher from UBC. From advancements in technology to increasing how many people survive, we have a lot to share with you today. But mixed up in all this, you may have heard that the quest for a treatment that makes an auditorium fall silent has become a business. So where does that leave patients waiting for the cure? Hi, I'm Erin Marshall, and I'm going to show you why this podcast is thicker than your average health show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the show, and welcome to the house that you helped build, because, Preet, the people have spoken. They have, Josh, and in case your ears have let you down, we have now used our new theme song for three full episodes. We wanted to say thanks to everyone who uh, cast their vote on this really highly contested race. And now it's uh, with that down, Preet, it's time to get down to business. Cancer business. Hold on, hold on. Okay, everyone put your other AirPod back in. We got a fantastic show. We are not going to bore you to tears with the details on the inner workings of cancer and the financial business. We actually have a really great show for you today. I think so that I know what we're working with here today. Josh, are you a doctor yet? And can we ask you all our questions about cancer so that you can answer them for us? Uh, That's going to be an easy uh, no and no from me. Uh, Not a doctor yet, and we have a way better option for you in terms of someone to go to when you need to ask your cancer questions. So my name is Erin Marshall. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate at the BC Cancer Research Centre. Uh, I work in the lung cancer group, and I study mostly lung cancer initiation, so really small tumors. Um, I work under the supervision of Dr. Juan Lam, and I've been there for, yeah, about five or six years now. We had a chance to ask some great questions about cancer, and one of those big ones we were trying to get to the bottom of was curing cancer. But as it turns out, maybe curing cancer isn't as simple as it might sound. Cancer cures aren't, aren't talked about as often as you would think in cancer research. Wait, hold on a second, Josh. Did she say they don't really talk about a cure when they do cancer research? What are they talking about then? Cancer really isn't one disease. It's not one single, we can cure this one thing that happens to a lot of people. Um, And it's not like 10 or 20 diseases either. Like lung cancers aren't all the same and ovarian cancers aren't all the same. And I think kind of for that reason, people rarely in cancer research, broad brush it as, as we're going to find a cure one day. But I think it's important for people to keep in mind that we're not going to just come up with one drug one day and that's going to be it. It's going to be a series of things and it's going to be kind of a, a long-term battle. Okay. I think I'm up to speed here. Clearly, Aaron is saying that it's apparently more complicated than just finding a cure. And if we had to read between the lines a little of what she might be saying there is that maybe the cure is a term that they use because it has a better ring to it than, wait, how did Aaron put it again? Cure is definitely thrown around more than than treatment. I think it's just, you know, like a sexier word in a way. Like it's uh, saying, saying that we're going to cure the disease rather than we're going to effectively treat the disease. <laughs> right. Then effectively treating the disease uh, still sounds important, but maybe isn't quite as catchy to those who are listening to it. 
So to do that, stick around. We'll talk all about the things that we have to celebrate and how far cancer has come. We'll get into the business behind it, but first, pre... Let's get crispy. Recently and, and topically, CRISPR has allowed for wide scale <laughs> changes in how we kind of mutate things and test things in the lab. But what CRISPR allows you to do is make the, the changes that you want to make a lot more easily. CRISPR is a, a gene editing technology. We're able to go in and alter things specifically. Um, and then in the case of cancer research, we can say alter a, a gene in a normal cell to look like another cancer cell and test how that would behave in response to a drug um, or a whole kind of myriad of ways, I guess, almost endless. CRISPR, as Aaron explained it, is a tool that can edit the human genome. It stands for a clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeat. With CRISPR, it's a finely tuned programmable tool that works right on human cells. You can think of it as a very, uh, very, very small pair of scissors that can cut into the genome and make changes right at a specific spot. And the reason you might want to make changes at the specific spot is that because we know that some mutations in the genome can cause diseases, diseases like cancer. And with CRISPR and the way we're able to edit the genome, we can make edits that could very well result in less disease. So things can get quite ethically enigmatic, depending on what cells of the body you're wanting to make those edits on. Well, actually, Josh, I'm just going to cut you off there for a second. Are you familiar with one of the most ideal uses of CRISPR that's happened in the last five years? And by ideal, I mean perhaps the worst way it could have ever been used. In 2018, there was a giant conference being held in Hong Kong, and some of the top bioethicists and scientists across the world were there to convene, and one of the topics they were going to talk about was CRISPR and specifically the ethics of CRISPR and the things you need to consider before they really put it into practice. Because editing someone's genes, believe it or not, is a bigger conversation than just we can cure anything. It doesn't really work that way. So they attend this conference and a speaker goes up and he's a scientist from the Southern University of Science and Technology in China. And before this conversation can even begin about the ethics, he pulls up slides and shows that he's already used CRISPR to make a pair of twins who are now four years old HIV resistant. And you can imagine what happened at this conference. It was a massive uproar. If you want to see really angry scientists, just Google CRISPR twins and you will see a myriad of stories about this. And you can see uh, people even including Jennifer Doudna, who is one of the co-inventors um, of CRISPR, denouncing this scientist. And actually in 2019, the scientist was actually sentenced to three years in prison by the Chinese courts. So CRISPR is a much bigger conversation than just editing one gene. So you're telling me that this person didn't wait for anyone else's approval or opinion and just found the technology and said, why not? This is, nothing could go wrong here. Essentially, but the problem is there was actually a rule already in place. There's international guidelines on how to use this type of technology. And this scientist essentially said, I'm just going to recruit a set of eight parents and try to do this to eight sets of children. But it set off a lot of controversy because it's not ethical and is it actually going to work? We don't know that. But the scientist was actually trying to stop HIV spread. But 
Pre I'm confused. What's the connection to cancer? This is a totally different disease, isn't it? It's a totally different disease, but the premise is the same. If you edit one gene in someone's body, it doesn't mean that you just edit that gene and nothing else changes. And that was a big part of the whole conversation. If you look at the consideration of changing someone's genes, it's hard to predict how that changes their body as a whole and whether, that, whether down the line they could be susceptible to something even worse. If you take that example and apply it to cancer, you can see it's not as simple as just snapping our fingers with CRISPR and suddenly cancer is gone forever. Because of the way that cancers arise, they're all different and they're all, they all kind of have unique needs within the body and, and by that nature need unique treatments or, or respond differently to the treatments that we give them. Okay, so CRISPR is a tool, but it hasn't yet found the cure for us. Uh, a little bit because of what Aaron has to say and how this isn't just finding one gene problem solved cancer gone. According to Aaron, something good actually happened in 2020, if you can believe it. And that just so happens to have been in the cancer research world. I guess the most recent change um, and, and shift in focus that I can think of that's had a major effect on, on my research is uh, drugging RAS. RAS is a really common commonly mutated gene in cancer. Um, it's like 40% of lung cancers have a RAS mutation and 40% of colon cancers have a RAS mutation. Time out, Preet. Your turn. What's RAS? So RAS is a family of genes that makes proteins that are involved in pathways that control cell growth, but also cell death. It's one of the most common oncogenes in cancer. And an oncogene is essentially a cancer-causing gene. And for 20, 30 years, for as long as we've as long as we've known about RAS mutations, pretty much, no one's been able to drug them. Um, no one's been able to effectively get a drug to specifically inhibit a, a type of KRAS. Last year, uh, a company came out and published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine and said we can drug RAS. And that was almost like a light switch um, in a whole bunch of people because it was something that we'd expected. People had been working on for a long, long time, but no one had been able to do. But this is a lot of science. And as we may know, sometimes science takes a little bit of time to trickle down to those who need it. But the big question that really matters, how is this gonna change the way that we can deliver healthcare to the people who need it? I, I think, one of the major ways that cancer research has been improved in the past little while has really been in the personalization. People are, are taking um, a personalized approach, both to therapy and treatment. So um, in terms of giving people drugs that work for them, rather than just giving people a drug because of, of the fact that they have cancer. Um, and, but that also kind of extends down to beyond treatment, um, like a a genomic level. So if you're able to look at cancer data, people are now able to kind of pick out mutations or specific things that are common to specific sets of patients and group them in ways that we maybe wouldn't think to group them originally. So kind of like I mentioned earlier, we before people were always saying, okay, you have a, a lung cancer, maybe they all look the same. But you know, nowadays people are starting to look for other characteristics that are common to tumors rather than just maybe the cell type or the organ that they originated from. Personalization. The medical treatments are becoming specific to the person they're supposed to treat. But what does personalized medicine mean? And by comparison, how is that different from what we do now? Well, with this process of personalized medicine, going back to a little bit of the idea of CRISPR where you're going to make those edits, this process goes back to measure people's genes using genomics. 
And we're looking for those mutations that we might want CRISPR to go manage. We're looking for the mutations, as she said, that are associated with different groups of cancer and how those complex interactions with those person's genes and their own environment end up resulting in a disease like a cancer. With this information, we can get a sense for we can get a sense for treatments that will work best for them as an individual versus maybe how they would have worked for a group of people. And result, this is going to be more effective. There's going to be less side effects. And with cancer, that's a pretty big deal. So this sounds pretty ideal, and it sounds like everything we want from any drug, any piece of technology, and any way that we interact with the healthcare system as a whole to have everything tailored to exactly what we need. So since this is a great approach for treating people, there must be a reason why it's not the norm within our system already. In terms of the actual treatment costing so much, um, the, the drugs themselves are, are sometimes costly. Um, but I think that that stems from the personalization of some of these cancer drugs. The, I guess the most um, newest and, and topical uh, expensive cancer drug is CAR T-cell therapy, where on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, they, they take out some of your cells from your body, and then a person in a lab cultures them and makes them do different things basically and be better at getting rid of your tumor and then put back into you. And then those cells are put back into you. And that is obviously an extremely expensive procedure. Taking out your own immune cells and then making adjustments to them to then treat your cancer sounds like maybe the most personal way that you could deliver medicine back to someone. I'd have to agree with you. But just so we don't lose anyone, and this will be the last explanation, I promise. Aaron mentioned CAR T cell therapy. CAR, C-A-R, is an acronym for chimeric antigen receptor, T-cells, which come from the thymus and bone marrow. And this whole CAR T-cell therapy is a type of cancer treatment strategy that is a subcategory of adopted cell therapy, which is exactly what Aaron describes it as. We're taking your own cells and repurposing them in some way so that they can be used to eliminate your own cancer. Again, about as personalized as a treatment could possibly be. We take your cells, we adjust those, and then give them back to you to treat the cancer that you have. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think it's exciting. I mean, that's it's the kind of thing that's pushing the frontier of what we can do to treat a disease like this. But I think the money that goes into it is really important to keep in mind as cancer researchers, but I think it's important um, to really kind of reckon with that and kind of sit with that and be like, okay, we're doing this um, to have an impact on patients, but it's costing, it's costing this much. So we really should do the best we can with, with what we have basically. And we're lucky that those resources in cancer research are oftentimes a lot or, or more than other fields of health re research. Listening to what Aaron's talking about, Josh, she brought up something really interesting. And I think it's something that people don't either think about or know about. And that's how much money it really takes to treat and research cancer. And it's for a good reason. It's really, really expensive to do everything involved in that whole process. But I think we need to talk about what those actual things are so that people understand better. Before we get to where all that money comes from, Preet, and, and where it needs to go to, she mentioned something about cancer research and the other areas of healthcare that maybe aren't getting the same amount of funding. And there's an important point with that. Cancer kills a lot of people every year, but it isn't actually the number one killer globally. 
That actually belongs to cardiovascular disease, including things like heart attacks and stroke. Here in Canada, yes, cancer still is the number one cause of death, but those other causes are growing. And yes, all of those causes are getting funding, but do they all get their share of the funding? And what is this aspect we're talking about with the business of cancer research, Preet? You're telling me that it costs a lot of money and what we find with all this money ends up going somewhere. Is there a bit of a business behind this we don't understand? Josh, I think that's absolutely a real concern um, and a consideration that we need to have going forward. The market for cancer research is growing. And just because there's a market doesn't inherently mean it's a bad thing either. But if you look at the U.S., by 2027, the market for cancer res- for cancers that are metastatic, so metastatic cancers are cancers that are spreading in the body, that dollar amount is going to exceed $100 billion in the next six years. And it's something that I think we need to think about when we talk about how these drugs and technologies and inventions are developed and brought to patients. And currently, in every health sector, whether it's research or whether it's in actual primary care at a hospital, all we're thinking about is how do we use money the most effectively? But what about these other diseases we mentioned, Preet? Cardiovascular disease, diabetes, any other chronic condition, are, are they getting the attention? Are these all getting the same sort of business uh, and financial concerns that cancer is? So I think the short answer is actually yes. I think cancer is more publicized and has more buzzwords associated with it because there's lots of groups fundraising. So people might just be more aware of it as a whole. But if you look at how drugs are developed for cardiovascular disease and diabetes, the drugs that are developed and that people have to take, people are taking those for years and years and years for the rest of their lives. So the market is huge for those diseases as well. But cancer just has a different level of publicity to it. I think this might touch back on what Aaron said about how every cancer is its own disease. Therefore, there's a different fundraising effort, a different organization behind each one of these causes. There's uh, breast cancer research, there's lung cancer research, there's and there's fundraisers for all of those as well. And so I think that this maybe touches upon why as a whole disease spectrum, cancer really does get a lot of attention is because like you said, for the majority of that, it is all lumped together for this one big cause. Absolutely. And so I think when we look at the sheer dollar amounts and the shock factor that those numbers have, when we look at how much is invested in cancer research, I think we have to think about the fact that the way it's funded is different because the disease is different. And so, I mean, maybe this is a lot of just advertising on behalf of cancer foundations, but there's a reason why they need this much money. And there's a reason why they get so much money. And I'm willing to bet that some of those same reasons are why so many different businesses and startups are coming out of all of this cancer research. The, the idea of a cancer business just throws my mind for a loop. There, there aren't two words that go together for me. So how does someone do that? How does someone create a cancer startup? From what I've seen happen before, labs kind of come up with a, a target or, or something that they think can be altered um, and affect cancer therapy. Um, and what other labs and companies do then oftentimes is they spin off a company on the side and say, okay, what we're going to try and do now is work up this target to make it the best possible candidate to be a therapy down the line. Um, and so that kind of academic burden is in a sense taken off of the lab um, and and put onto this company 
that then is able to bring something closer to market. Um, and then, you know, things happen down the line with pharma companies and, and however else things, <laughs> things end up in patients' hands. But, but I think it just kind of shifts the, um, the academic burden around. So oftentimes labs are focused more on widespread, um, like kind of candidate discovery in a way and working it up to a, to a viable point that we're quite confident that it could be a drug target. And then from on, the, the burden of proof is oftentimes shifted towards a company and then another company passed that. Great, we may have our answer. This may be how someone ends up making a business out of cancer. A lab has a target, something that they think may be effective in treating cancer. Maybe RAS is one of those examples that Aaron brought up before. And they branch themselves off from the academic and the research world, and they move themselves into forming a business. And when you first hear that idea, you might not be entirely comfortable with how that works. But obviously, Preet, there's a reason why this is a good direction for research to go, right? I think so. And what it probably comes down to is the fact that when a university lab is working on research, it can take a really long time to get the findings of that research and that end product one, developed, and two, into the hands of the people who need it. And that's not a critique of research itself. I think it's just a reality of how long it takes to develop these solutions. If I understand what you're saying with that, Preet, is that a business may be able to accomplish that goal of getting that research and those treatments to patients a little faster. Is that what you mean? Yes. Theoretically, it should be faster. But is it better? And I don't know if we have an answer for that yet. Is it the best way to do things? When you have all these people and all these groups chasing this sort of carrot at the end of the stick, which is the quote cure, which we know now is not the best way to think about it, all of a sudden, whether you mean to or not, you create a market. And that market for cancer becomes who can create the best drug, the fastest. And when you have a market for something, it might take away from the big picture, which is, how do we actually get it to patients? And one of those big barriers, once we get it to patients, is going to be what it always is, the expense. And who's going to have to pay for every step along the way? Are we looking at another Zolgensma circumstance all over again? I certainly hope not. And I don't think, I think it would be irresponsible for both of us to assume that that's what's going to happen. But I think the field is growing in cancer research and there's some amazing things happening which also means that there's some amazing things possible. And we don't know what it's gonna look like when we finally have those drugs and technology available to us. All those considerations aside, the way we're doing things right now is leading to some pretty amazing things. Outside of CRISPR, outside of RAS, we're seeing it affect the people who matter here the most. We know that smoking causes lung cancer and that smoking a lot means you're more likely to get lung cancer. But I would tell people and, and have told people that the more time you spend not smoking, the better. So the more days you can have behind you uh, for the, the quit since day um, means your outcome is better in the long term. So quitting earlier is important. You haven't just done a bunch of damage on your lungs for the past 20 years and it's hopeless now. So you might as well keep going. It's important to quit and then you do do better in the long run. In the course of my PhD, I started off my, all my presentations saying that the survival rate for lung cancer was 15% over five years, and now I say 20. 
And in a lot of worlds, you know, a difference of 5%, especially when you're talking about a jump from 15 to 20 may not mean a whole lot, especially when you can, it's hard to think about how many people that impacts. But if we're looking at the data we have in Canada up until 2019, where cancer has still been the number one cause of death, a 5% increase in survival for one of those large types and subgroups of cancer in lung cancer is a really significant outcome. And this isn't the only place we've seen significant changes. The, the one kind of major moment that sticks out in my head in my experience in cancer research, I remember being at a lecture probably about six or seven years ago now at BC Cancer. And there was a visiting scientist from Ottawa who came in um, and was showing a stage four melanoma case. And we know that melanoma, especially when it's late stage like that, is really, really hard to treat. And the survival is generally quite poor. And he had shown this photo of, of a man's arm and the tumor was quite large. And he was speaking to a whole kind of lecture theater of cancer researchers. And he said, we, we have this treatment, this drug, um, and we gave one injection um, and waited a couple weeks. And now the man's arm looks like this. And he brought up a second picture. And you could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium. It was absolutely crazy. No one had seen research done like that before or seen a stage four melanoma case with an outcome that good. A big thank you to Aaron Marshall for joining us on the show. If you have any questions for Aaron or for us about the things we discussed today, send us an email or shoot us a message on Twitter or Instagram. And as always, we invite you to do your own research. Check out some of the organizations that are promoting awareness and raising funds for research in a lot of these different areas of cancer. And you'll see a number of examples like the ones that Aaron explained about how cancer outcomes are improving. And be sure to check out the show notes where you can find more links on some of the info we had today if you want to dive in even deeper. The show is hosted by Preet Gandhi and me, Josh Britton. Edited and produced by Mac Britton. If you haven't already, please download and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or anywhere else you see the show. And if you're going through Apple, we'd love to see a five-star review from you and some of your thoughts right there in the podcast app. We're looking forward to sharing more with you on our next episode of Sicker Than Your Average Health Trail.